Welcome to In Conversation With, a Hollywood Reporter podcast produced in partnership with Apple TV+. In each episode, we sit down with the creators and stars of some of TV's most compelling shows to hear more about what went into bringing these stories to life. I'm Michael O'Connell, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. For this episode, I'm speaking with Josh Gad, the co-creator and star of Central Park, an animated musical comedy set in the famous Manhattan locale. It has a cast of Broadway heavy hitters, including Kristen Bell, Titus Burgess, David Diggs, Katherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Stanley Tucci, and of course, Gad himself. A quick note, I spoke with Josh before he, Kristen Bell, and the rest of the Central Park creative team decided that Kristen, who is white, would no longer voice the biracial character Molly after the first season. Josh, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Animation seems to have a really long runway from pitch to premiere. What was the first seed of this and, and how long has it been since the idea of Central Park first like germinated? Uh, about three years ago, I, I had this idea along with a buddy of mine, Kevin Larson, to do uh, a musical set in Central Park. I've, I've always been fascinated by Central Park in that it's sort of the great equalizer. Everybody who walks through there in this city that is so defined by class is on an even playing field, whether you you are the richest man in the world or the poorest man in the world or person rather. And I was I was really incredibly struck by this idea that that uh, you could do a story set in this place and allow it to sing. And, and my obsession with musicals is well known. I've, I've been on the stage doing Book of Mormon, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and of course on screen in the Frozen films and, and Beauty and the Beast. But I have never seen the kind of musical that I was imagining on the small screen, something that lived and breathed music, something that wasn't pastiche or that didn't feel like a, a show with music, but that felt like it had to sing, like the characters had to break out in the song in order to tell this story. So I, I, I pitched this to my agent, Richard Weitz, and he, uh, he, he said to me, literally, this is his voice. He goes, it's a really good idea. You, you, you can't do this alone. You, you got to take this to somebody better. Yeah, what about Lauren Bouchard? And I said, oh my God, are you kidding me? The creator of Bob's Burgers? I'm obsessed. He's never going to do this. And then he set you guys up on a meeting. So he sets me up on a meeting with Lauren and his partner, uh, Nora Smith. And uh, they sit there and they listen to my three-minute pitch, which was basically show, Central Park, musical. And they go, uh, uh, all right, well, yeah. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I have nothing more to offer. But lo and behold, they took the journey with me. And I am so grateful for that because, you know, the, the feedback has been exactly what I had prayed for is that you have this this thing that we created to not only be a love letter to New York, but a love letter to passion, a love letter to perseverance and and just a, a, a bright light in a world that so very often and especially no now finds itself oftentimes in enormous darkness. So so that is uh that was about three years ago uh, since we started that journey. And here we are. To your point about shows with music versus musical shows, Bob's Burgers is very much, I feel, a, a show that has musical elements to it, but it doesn't really define the show. And so I went into this expecting that and it's completely different. Like these musical numbers are so much more theatrical Who's the writing team behind the songs and and how are you approaching 
the musical elements episode by episode and sort of how they fit into the narrative? So I had a very strict philosophy going in. When when Lauren uh, and his team first heard that I wanted to do an average of four songs a show, they almost threw me out of their office because that's like unheard of from a production standpoint. But I, I really believed that it had to, it had to fully commit. Otherwise it would just sort of be like anything else. And in order to do that, it needed somebody who would fearlessly jump in headfirst and define what the series wanted to be. And so I turned to two collaborators that I had worked with on the Olaf Frozen Adventure short, Kristen Anderson Lopez's sister, actually, who wrote oh. the Frozen movies, uh, Kate Anderson, and her producing partner, Elisa Samsel. And the two of them I knew from taking on these incredibly iconic characters in Frozen and bringing new songs that I thought were equally iconic to the original films. I, I knew that they were capable of the task. I didn't realize just how brilliant they were going to be. So along with them, we, we hired a guy named Brent Knopf, who, who too was sort of our in-house composer. And, and they did the heavy lifting on the show. But I also knew that it was... Uh, too difficult a task to have, you know, two sets of composers write 40 something songs. So I knew we needed a diversity of sound, if you will. And, and, and I pitched to Lauren, what if we brought in a guest composer every episode? What if we brought in like Sarah Bareilles to do a song or Cindy Lauper uh, or Anthony Hamilton or, or even our, our one of our stars, David Diggs? What would that look like to have, you know, our, our songs written in house and then Amy Mann come in and, and do a, a number? And so we gave it a shot thinking nobody would say yes. And ultimately, here we are two seasons later and we can't even slot in everybody who wants to do an episode. We've been so blessed with with people who who now that they know what the show is, are so eager to collaborate. What is the collaboration process like when you bring in a, a guest composer? Do you talk about inspirations from other musicals? How much is the actual narrative playing a part in it? Like, and, and how much longer does it take to construct a half hour of this as opposed to a, a regular animated half hour? Oh, man, it, it is it is a lot of heavy lifting. So we have an incredible music team um, that it does most of that work that you mentioned, uh, led by uh, the brilliant Frank Chompy, who we are so grateful came to us from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and has just been such a treasure. The uh, only other show I can think of that's even yeah, attempted yeah, anything and, and, like and this. And that's why we hired him. We were just like, okay, you know this space. He regrets it now. Uh, <laughs> and, and of course, the Daisy brothers uh, who come from the Bob's Burgers world. So all of us will receive a script from the writing team, and then we'll go through the script based on the, the sort of designated spots that the writers feel organically lend themselves to songs. And they'll give us that to work off of, and then we'll give them feedback feedback, you know, sometimes it'll be as simple as, you know, we think that this bot wants to sing instead, or we think that this song is doing too much heavy lifting for the story, and we'd like it to be more of a thematic song or more of a funny song. And then with that, we get back uh, final notes from Lauren and Nora, and then we'll hand over some 
document, some form of document, including a script to our guest composers. Like recently we, we had Shaggy do, do a song for us, who's brilliant. And, and so we'll show them not only the, the script, but also clips from uh, previous episodes to, to give them a sense of familiarity with the world and the characters. Awesome. You're making this show for a relatively new platform the first sort of like big animated show. How did you envision who your audience would be knowing there really wasn't a precedent in place? Like if you if you were to launch a, a show on like Fox Sunday night, like people kind of know what that audience is, but you were sort of starting from scratch. Who did you who did you envision as the the viewer? You know, I have never made uh, certainly anything on television that has felt like a true co-viewing experience. You know, uh, obviously, Avenue 5 is for a very specific demographic. Uh, <laughs> things, things like the comedians are for a very specific demographic. So I, I really wanted to create something that could be watched by uh, a seven-year-old and watched by a 17-year-old and have something to offer both. And, and frankly, I thought that Bob's Burgers really manages to achieve that so that everybody has something to, to enjoy. It is not an easy task to launch on, on a platform that is still finding itself and still being defined in the early days of this sort of wild west frontier where everybody has a platform out there. It probably would have been a safe bet to to do as you said to go with a a pre-existing, you know, format like like a Fox or a Netflix. But the truth is is Lauren and I were sort of really intrigued and and excited about defining a new space, excited about not only finding a, a new audience but but bringing a new audience to to our to our partner uh, in Apple and, and, and creating from scratch like Fox did in its earliest days with the Simpsons, a new audience uh, that would define what the show is. You've done so much voice work in your career, but I imagine this is the first time you've been as intimately involved in the process. Oh yeah. What, what have you learned about animation and the sort of specific assembly of it that surprised you? It's a lot of work. I, I, my, my hat, you know, I, I tip my hat to all of the incredible animation teams that have done, uh, you know, all the heavy lifting on the projects that I've been a part of from the Frozen franchise, Angry Birds. I, I, I really do have a, an, a whole new respect because I now am the one who is watching the evolution from thematic to animatic to color and and going through that process and and seeing just how much manpower and how much work and effort and artistry and craftsmanship goes into every single frame of every single episode especially when you're talking about animating four musical numbers which is I mean, it is a feat that has never been attempted to the best of my knowledge on television before. That is, it really does just blow me away, especially because we're a show unlike a lot of others that has continued through quarantine. We, we uh, just last night, I was giving notes on an animatic that was pretty much produced all from the safety of every everybody's home that that's a pretty crazy thing to think about that you can create a tv series from your homes but but that is what we're endeavoring to do right now 
I mean, the appetite for animation right now is huge because it is one of the few things that you can produce remotely. Where, where in the process on season two were you when you guys had to sort of reconfigure and, and start working remotely? So we were uh, three quarters of the way through the writing and the early production on season two, um, you know, uh, thankfully. And, you know, we, we are we have continued to write about a dozen, uh, half a dozen scripts from quarantine, continue to animate about uh, a dozen new episodes from quarantine and continue to write again about 40 songs from quarantine. So <laughs> there's a lot going on with a lot of spinning plates. I imagine that the songwriting would be one of the more difficult things to do remotely because it is such a often such a collaborative experience. That's right. That is right. So, you know, the songwriting is never something uh, that we do in person normally. It's something mm -hmm. that we, we send a, a brief to somebody and and then we get back what we get back. So so that's true. What does change, though, is production uh, of music, meaning it's very difficult to match the quality, the sound and and the feel of a song that is produced in a studio as opposed to a song that's produced from, a, uh, you know, whatever mics we can find on, on Amazon and, you know, whatever we're given in terms of, of uh, our artist space to record from. So, so that's been a challenge. Voice-wise, you assembled quite a murderer's row of, of musical talent, Broadway veterans. How early in the process did that come together and was this always your your wish list so it's very strange to say because it sounds insane but the cast was assembled before we even knew what characters we had to work with we you know lauren bouchard in creating bob's burgers he wanted to create a group of people that he was friends with because he knew in success he would want to spend many years with that group. So he empowered me with the same philosophy to go out and cast a wide net to see who would want to come and play with us on this ill-defined concept that we had at the time. Uh, I was really blessed to to have pretty much everyone I went to say yes. I mean, it was, you know, people like Leslie Odom Jr., who I went to, to college with and have watched explode off of his brilliant uh, Tony Award-winning performance in Hamilton. People Heard like of it. Yeah, people like David <laughs> Diggs, his co-star, another Tony Award winner. Uh, people like my Frozen co-star, Kristen Bell, or, or uh, the brilliant Titus Burgess, who, who I have been obsessed with on Kimmy Schmidt and way before that, uh, and A Little Mermaid on Broadway. And, and of course, uh, the brilliant Catherine Hahn and the one-of-a-kind Stanley Tucci. So it was a, it was a murderer's row, and, and we were so grateful that everybody uh, took a leap of faith with us. It's interesting because so often in animation, there is a, a pilot script and some like idea of aesthetics before casting comes into place. And, and in getting the cast, like so many cartoons are just like either overwhelmingly white or devoid of race completely because they're animals or whatever. But you were able to really like represent the cast like more visually in this, which is quite atypical in animation. 
Um, I, I wish that weren't the case. I mean, I, I, we, we, you know, we went in just wanting to, to create the, the greatest ensemble we could think of in an ensemble that frankly didn't BS the audience, uh, in terms of their singing prowess. Cause if you're doing a musical, you bet, you better get, uh, people who can truly sing. And, and that was at the forefront of, of our thinking. When did you decide that you wanted to be part of the cast and, and that you would be playing this sort of narrator? I didn't want to be. I actually felt like <laughs> I was, uh, you know, not un unnecessary. You know, our partners at 20th and Lauren convinced me to find a place for myself, which which frankly was like the least of my concerns. Um, but I said, you know what I would love to do is I'd love to be almost a, like a, a source of consciousness, like, a, a, you know, the conscience for for Owen and the family, uh, a la like a Jiminy Cricket gone wrong. I love this idea <laughs> of, uh, of a sort of narrator who isn't very good at his job. Lauren and I both grew up with um, that uh, Disney version of Robin Hood, who has that like character that sings at the beginning, Robin Hood and little John. Walker. Yeah. Or is And so the idea of like having a character like that with a violin was really intriguing to us. Uh, you know, we were also inspired, of course, by uh, by the character in, in something about Mary. Um, and, and so we, we, we sort of took an amalgamation of of these different ideas, you know, characters like Bert in Mary Poppins and and the aforementioned ones in, in Jiminy Cricket and and created uh, created Birdie out of that. You describe the show as a, as an event series. You you went into it with a, a two season order. How do you sort of like balance the freedom that animated storytelling allows with the fact that you have this sort of like specific narrative guiding the plot in this? Well, what's really interesting is I think the audience is going to find over the course of the season, the show evolves into a much freer episodic feel. We, you know, we felt early on like what what was really working for us was a loose, a loose structured story driven series that didn't necessarily force you to have to see one episode in order to appreciate the next. But to those who were devoted to the show would pay off things that were set up early on. And so as the season progresses, I think it just gets looser and looser uh, with still the overarching theme of Bitsy wanting to buy this park. Which is just so unfathomable. <laughs> is it though? Like that's that's the thing is when Lauren and I started this, we we really, you know, bandied about a couple of different ideas and 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 at the time we were like, well, can, could somebody feasibly do this or you know, what would it what would it take and and literally as we were discussing it, the administration was selling off public lands from some of our national parks. And we're talking about like thousands of acres in Utah, thousands of acres in, 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 in similar states where these lands have just always been protected. So people don't even know to think for a second, could that happen? You know, um, so, so I think, I think it, it, yes, in some ways it's unfathomable, but isn't so much of 2020 unfathomable? And yet here we are. Here we are. Uh, how much of the the sort of like politics at play about the the contract with the park is 
at all founded. I'm just curious in in any real life relationship in the city of New York. Well, what's funny is, is, you know, Lauren is the greatest devotee of fact driven writing I've ever seen. He 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 forces our writers to do more research than a thesis writing um, grad student. And that research is all based in in what you know, can effectively be described as as fairly factual. Uh, would it take a lot to sell the park? Yes. Is the park somewhat a, a fragile entity? Um, yeah, probably a little bit. I mean, l- like anything that's driven by bureaucracy and red tape, I I think there would be such outrage, frankly, if if Central Park were were sold to build private properties. But but it is to in some effect based on this truth that the Central Park League depends on money, and without that money, the park would maybe go down a notch in terms of in terms of its effectiveness in terms of its beauty you know so so i think a, a part of that is is really based in in reality what were your favorite cartoons growing up tv cartoons yeah oh man well d- depending on when you would catch me um early on it was that uh killer lineup of of those disney cartoons tailspin darkwing duck ducktales uh, Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the early part of my life. Then I became a Simpsons devotee, and and then when Family Guy first came out, I'll never forget seeing the pilot for that airing after uh, the Super Bowl, I believe, with the Rams. And and the second the Kool Aid Man came out and said, "Oh yeah," <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, "Oh my God, this was written for my sick sense of humor," you know. And and then over the course of the last couple of years. I've become incredibly drawn to uh, the BoJack Horsemans of the world, the Rick and Mortys of the world, the, the shows that are sort of taking things to the next level, breaking them apart and putting them back together. And of course, Bob's Burgers. Yeah. How are you thinking about the the lifespan of the show, knowing that it is as labor intensive as it is, but in success, animation seems to be able to run in perpetuity. Like we were seven when the Simpsons went on the air and it's still on the air. You know, I, I don't think about it on those broader terms. I think about it on a day to day basis. It, there's so much that has to go into making an episode that I, I thankfully I don't have the luxury of a 30,000 foot view yet. I never want to wear out my welcome with anything that I do. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think if there ever comes a point where I'm like, you know what, the, there's no reason for the show to exist anymore. Lauren and I would both probably be the first to say, pull the plug. Having said that, I I am so excited by the amount of stories and the amount of potential that this series has right now. The amount of potential, not only for storytelling and for character development, but also for musical experimentation to sort of see how far we can go beyond what's imaginable, how far we can take different uh, genres and, and sort of create, uh, different sounds that you, you may not usually associate with a, with a musical. Where, where would you say your passions really lie right now doing more protosorial work? Like is your, is your heart in performance or are you really, do you sort of have the bug right now of, of having more power and more like big picture thinking? 
Well, uh, if asking me in this particular moment when I'm stuck in, in my home yes. and, and working from quarantine, I would say creation is my greatest asset, right? Yeah. Like the, the power to create, whether it's um, this animated series on Apple or something like Reunited Apart, my, my series that I created on YouTube to raise money for, for various charities, that, that, is, um, that is where my passion lies today. You know, if the virus disappeared and I could go back to doing what I do, I would step away immediately and get in front of the camera and <laughs> uh, and perform again because it's it's it is my lifeblood. I mean, that that's what I feed on and that energy can never be replaced. So, you know, it, it's it's really a product of of uh, my surroundings and, and the environment that I'm presented with. But you were excited and hungry to like be creative in this time and not oh, just sort oh, of like yeah. go into the oh. fetal position. No, I started in the fetal position and I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? I was really bummed because I, I would go into my daughter's school every day and read or every Friday and read a chapter from Harry Potter. And uh, that first day where we found out we were going to have to shelter in place, I was I was pissed. I felt robbed of that opportunity. So I got on. um on Twitter and I taped myself reading kids, reading books to kids. And, and it felt like I was of use, right? Mm -hmm. It felt like I could, I could do something to give people a break from the, the, the heartbreaking reality that, that we were all confronted with. So, you know, th that to me is, is the power of creation right now. And, and yes, I feel very blessed to be able to be on that side of things and, and continue to develop uh, new things that, that are, are going to be a product of this moment. Do you feel that this sort of like direct access between talent and creators and, and viewers in the general public is going to linger beyond this? What do you mean? Like, reading stories on Twitter to kids, like something that would have been kind of unheard of five months ago. I think we're a product of, of the circumstances that we're dealt with. So I think, you know, right now, I think it makes more sense to do things that connect you with your audience at home, because that that's really one of the only outlets we have as creators to, you know, to entertain, to, to get a message out, to, to give people an emotional journey. Yeah. We're going to do a lightning round before I let you go. Oh. If you had to quarantine with one of your Central Park co-stars, who would it be? Hmm. Chris and Bell. Okay. If you had to give one sort of like big cultural recommendation out of this time, sheltering in place, TV show, movie, podcast, book, what would it be? Ooh. I uh, just read an amazing book that'll give you a sense of hope in the world again called The Overstory. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's oh, by yeah. Richard Powers. Uh, an amazing book and, you know, just reminds you of the beauty and the fragility of life. No one will be able to to know this because they can't see it, but you did just immediately grab that book and show it to me. It was like, I always have it at hand when somebody asks me um, to answer a question like yours, even though I haven't really read it. I just like to show it off. What's one way that your life has improved being stuck at home and slowing down a bit? A hundred percent being with my girls. You know, I, I have to travel a lot. I have to be away a lot for work. And, and the, the silver lining, I'll call it the gold lining, is that I'm getting to spend 
morning, afternoon, and night with my two daughters. And, and that to me has been um, irreplaceable. That's lovely. Uh, Josh Gad, thank you so much for joining me. This was a thrill to be uh, able to sit with you and talk to you. Thanks for having me on. That's it for this series of In Conversation With. Be sure to check out Central Park and all of the series we've discussed on Apple TV+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs>